the History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4. The Medieval World. Episode 11. The Battle of Manzikert. The location for the Battle of Manzikert is believed to be in or around the modern Turkish village of Malazgirt, which is around 30 miles northeast of Lake Van, which is a lake which is not too far from Turkey's Iranian border, which is in the east of Turkey. It is also not far from the Euphrates River, but in its upper reaches near to its source, which meant that this area would generally avoid the intense politics of the earliest Mesopotamian societies. These lands would have likely been occupied by Hurrians if we go back to the beginnings of history. Hurrian culture and language appear to be quite exclusive and unique to this area, with no known language connections to other large language groups. Possibly the most well-known Hurrian speakers were the Mitanni, whose centre of power was south of Lake Van. The kingdom of the Mitanni emerged in mysterious circumstances during the middle centuries of the second millennium BCE and were politically linked to the two main powers of Upper Mesopotamian lands, who were the Assyrians and the Hittites. The Mitanni are not necessarily believed to be of Hurrian origin, but could have instead migrated into these lands and adopted the language. It is a little bit sketchy to decipher who was in control of which lands during this early period in the development of the modern societies of the areas around Lake Van, but it's possible that the Mitanni controlled lands nearby to the location of Manzikert and certainly to the south of the lake. The area to the north may have been under the control of a confederation called the Hayaza Azi, and these people could have been an important part of the ancestry of the Armenians. The Mitanni kingdom collapsed in the 14th century BCE before first falling under the influence of the Hittites and then, in turn, under the Assyrians. Towards the end of the second millennium BCE, and we pass through the timelines of the event known as the Late Bronze Age Collapse. This saw the disappearance of the Hittites and the diminishing of the Assyrians, and we have no reference at all to the situation in the area around Lake Van, so it was a true Dark Age. 
The Assyrian Empire began to recover in the 9th century BCE, and this also means the emergence of written history. And we learn that the Assyrians were doing battle with a king, Arame, ruling over a kingdom of Urartu, which may have emerged from or subjugated the Nairi tribes in this area. The name Urartu refers to the name that the Assyrians gave to this kingdom and could relate to the mighty volcanic Mount Ararat, which stands tall in these lands and sits on the modern Turkish lands overlooking its borders with Iran and Armenia. This area and the Urartu kingdom are an important part of the Armenian national historical story and the Armenian name for the kingdom would have related more to the other modern name given to it, which is the Kingdom of Van. This will also lend its etymological roots to the name of Lake Van, which later Armenians would claim to be home of the Lake Van monster, a monster very similar in its folklore mystique to the Loch Ness monster in Scotland. The kingdom of Urartu would gain more power and influence in the lands of Upper Mesopotamia while the Assyrians constructed a powerful new empire to the south which can be referred to as the Neo-Assyrian Empire and was the empire that briefly conquered Egypt. The Urartians would have their problems with the Cimmerian steppe nomads to their north and the Neo-Assyrians who would subjugate them during the 8th century BCE. When the power of the Neo-Assyrians declined during the 7th century, the Euratians regained their full independence before eventually being consumed by the Median Empire, which had emerged in Iranian lands. The Median Empire was conquered by the Achaemenid Persians, and so the lands around Lake Van were very much now a part of the Persian Empire at the end of the 6th century BCE. It may have been before the Achaemenid conquest that the area around Lake Van was being governed as a satrapy by satraps belonging to the Orontid dynasty. This would be a satrapy of Armenia, and from here we can see the development of Armenian culture, tradition and identity. After Alexander the Great of Macedon conquered all of the lands of the Persians, including Armenia, in the 4th century BCE, the Armenians had built up enough independence to be able to wrestle itself away from the suzerainty of the successor states of the Diadochi of Alexander the Great. The Orontid dynasty would be deposed after allowing Armenia to become a vassal to the Seleucids before the Artaxiads would restore the kingdom's independence under its own dynastic rule. Armenia would be sandwiched between two mighty new empires in the 1st century BCE, the Parthians to the east and the Roman Republic in the west, and as such would become subject to intense politics between the two. Armenia was a wealthy and influential realm, and if the Parthians or the Romans could influence or even subjugate Armenia, then it would be an important advantage to have against the rival classic world superpower. Armenia would then spend many centuries as a pawn in the game between the rulers 
of the Imperial Roman lands and Imperial Persian lands. The Parthians replaced the Artaxiads with the Arsacids as the ruling dynasty during the 1st century, but Armenia remained a nation politically divided in its loyalties, and this would continue as the Parthians made way for the Sasanians, and the Romans separated into Western and Eastern entities. The result would be that the Kingdom of Armenia would have its lands separated into Byzantine Armenia in the West and Persian Armenia in the East, where the lands around Lake Van would be found. Sasanians would encourage Persian Armenia to culturally detach itself from Byzantine Armenia by trying to encourage its cultural development. Armenia had readily embraced Christianity very quickly during the 4th century and the Sasanians would want to encourage a different direction back towards Zoroastrianism in order to distance Armenia from Constantinople. However, all this really did was inflame the Armenian national spirit and the Persian Armenians happily nurtured its diplomatic relationship with the Byzantine Empire to suit itself rather than completely bowed down to the Sasanians. As tensions increased between the Byzantines and the Sasanians during the end of the 6th century and the beginning of the 7th century, Armenian lands would find themselves in the thick of a competition. The competition proved to be too much for both empires, whose exhaustion from battle with each other paved the way for a new Arab power from the south to carve its way through Upper Mesopotamian territory, and so the lands to the west of Lake Van would fall to the Arabs, ending the existence of Persian Armenia. Although the Arabs followed the new Islamic religion, the Armenian Christian Church continued to exist within the new Arab Emirate of Armenia, which was established within the Islamic Caliphate of the Middle East. However, the Armenian national spirit continued to exist, as well as Byzantine intention to influence Armenia, so tensions continued to exist in this area, which could still be considered as a borderland between cultures. The Emirate of Armenia fragmented in the 9th century, and the city of Manzikert came under the influence of a powerful Kaysite dynasty, which maintained control until the 10th century, when the city would eventually fall under the control of the Bagratids. By this time, the Islamic Caliphate was now a shadow of its former self, falling under the influence of rival dynasties, leaving the Byzantines to take control of the city of Manzikert after a political arrangement with the Bagratids. The Byzantine Empire We have already learned much about the Byzantines during this series, so we really only need give a brief summary about them before moving forward. The centre of the Roman world was in the city of Rome on the Italian peninsula for many centuries until the Roman emperors of the 3rd and 4th centuries eventually moved the administrative centre to the city of Constantinople in the lands of Thrace and on the European coast of the Bosphorus Strait. As Rome weakened, Constantinople continued to prosper and the centre of Roman culture migrated eastwards as the Western Roman Empire 
centred on the Italian peninsula, slipped into obscurity as Germanic peoples moved into the area and took control. The remnants of the empire was the Eastern Roman Empire, or the Byzantine Empire, named after Constantinople's traditional name, Byzantium. The Byzantines would fend off Roman traditional enemies, such as the Persians and the Germanics, until the emergence of the Arab Muslims, who would threaten many of the Byzantine overseas territories of the Mediterranean lands, such as Africa, the Levant and Sicily. The Byzantine Empire would not be able to sustain its vast realm as powerful new nations came to the fore and pressurised the extremities of the empire. Inevitably, the Byzantine Empire would become a much more compact and localised nation and Byzantine politics would adapt to the circumstances of the medieval age. Foreign enemies would attack Byzantine territory and often attempt to besiege Constantinople, but such was the defensibility of the city that all foreign sieges resulted in failure. The Byzantine Christian Church established its own identity which alienated it from Rome, and the Roman Catholic Church was influential over many of the emerging medieval nations of Europe, which left the Byzantines out in the cold a little when it came to gaining support against its enemies. Toward the end of the first millennium, a wave of new Turkic peoples from the eastern steppe lands began to filter into Eurasia, migrating westwards in tribal confederations. One of the more famous of these were the Bulgars, who migrated from the northern Caucasus, around the northern coast of the Black Sea to the lands around the mouth of the Danube River. They would establish their nation here on the borderlands of the Byzantine Empire, and very many instances of warfare between the Bulgars and the Byzantine Empire would ensue. The Seljuk Turks Another branch of Turkic migration would be in the shape of the Oğuz Turks, who would establish an area of settlement in the lands between the Caspian and Aral Seas. Many Turkic clans and tribes from these migrations would serve as mercenaries for wealthy nations, enabling them to gather their own wealth. One such clan would migrate under the leadership of a man called Seljuk, who discovered and converted to Islam, and this would create a division between him and the Oğuz Turks. Seljuk and his descendants would expand their influence over their neighbours in order to create their own Sunni Islamic national identity originally based around the area of Transoxania from the end of the 10th century going into the 11th century. Under Seljuk's grandson, Turil Beg, the Seljuks would expand their influence and realm by taking control of large amounts of Ghaznavid territory after defeating them in battle at Dandanakan. These expansions would bring them to the upper Mesopotamian borderlands of the Byzantine Empire, where the Seljuk Turks would happily raid their lands. The heart of Islamic culture was now in the city of Baghdad, and represented by a dynasty called the Abbasids, and as such is referred to as the Abbasid Caliphate. The Abbasids were descendants from members of the family of the Prophet Muhammad, 
and were considered to be a holy or spiritual connection to the foundation of Islam. Although the Abbasids were no longer considered to be a military influence, if a nation could befriend them and bring them under their own influence, then it would be as if they would be operating with the blessing of God. So the Seljuks moved to take control of Baghdad and gain control of the Abbasid Caliphate, legitimising their position as the dominant Islamic power of the Middle East. Romanos IV Since the glory days of Basil the Bulgar Slayer, who was the Byzantine Emperor Basil II, the Byzantine Empire entered a period of relative instability, and Romanos Diogenes, later to become Emperor Romanos IV, would witness the comings and goings of many different emperors in his younger years. Basil the Bulgar Slayer was an emperor from the Macedonian dynasty of rulers of the Byzantine Empire, and it would be one of his successors, Romanos III, who would be the emperor when our Romanos was born. His father was Constantine Diogenes, a high-standing Byzantine military general. Constantine was an important member of the army of Basil the Bulgar Slayer and took part in the Battle of Chalidian in 1014. During our episode on the Battle of Chalidian, we learned of the resolve of the military general called Theophylact Botaniatis, who, as the governor of the city of Thessalonica, defended it from being besieged by the Bulgarians before fighting alongside Basil and Constantine at the Battle of Chalidian itself. After Botaniates was killed in the subsequent Battle of Strumitsa, Constantine Dioyenis would become the new governor of Thessalonica. Basil the Bulgar Slayer died in 1025 after the longest reign in Roman imperial history, less than a month before completing his 50th year in charge. After his death, the imperial rule of the Byzantine Empire descended into chaos and when Romanos III was instated on the throne, Constantine Diogenes was imprisoned for being part of a movement to depose him. It may have been around this period when his son Romanos Diogenes was born. Constantine committed suicide rather than face the consequences of facing punishment for his treasonous intentions against the emperor. Romanos would grow up watching emperors come and go due to fierce competition. This unstable political situation allowed the Seljuk Turks to raid Byzantine territories. Despite the Diogenes family line originating in the area of Cappadocia in eastern Anatolia, Romanos would gain his military reputation in the Byzantine theme of Bulgaria, a country conquered in the aftermath of the Battle of Chalidian. The first emperor of the Ducas dynasty of rulers of the Byzantine Empire was Constantine X, who took the throne in 1059. Constantine was not popular with everybody due to the fact that he was gaining a reputation for not spending enough on the military strength of the empire. So when he died in 1067, his widow, Eldokia Macrembolitisa, would be granted the rule of the empire as regent to their son, before she would marry Romanos Diogenes due to his military reputation. Romanos would rule the empire 
as Romanos IV. Romanos was a political prisoner before this marriage and Eudokia would release him and marry him on the basis that he would protect her children. Romanos was a popular choice, but other members of the Ducas family, the family of the previous emperor and Eudokia's previous husband, would not be so happy. Romanos would want to deal with the issue of the Seljuk Turks being allowed to raid Byzantine lands too easily during the reign of Constantine X, Ducas, and he would have to placate the Ducai in order to be able to do so. It would be no good to campaign if there was too much civil unrest. Romanos would befriend the Komnenoi, another aristocratic Byzantine family, in order to counterbalance the threat of the Ducai to his throne. When Romanos campaigned eastwards, he would find that his military forces stationed there had been neglected, and he would be forced to use mercenaries in order to strike back at the Seljuk Turks. What followed was somewhat of a tit-for-tat set of exchanges between the Byzantines and the Seljuk Turks, but at least the Byzantines were now retaliating. Alub Arsalan Alub Arsalan was born as Muhammad bin Dawud Chagri and was the son of Dawud Chagri Beg and the great-grandson of Seljuk. Dawud Chagri Beg was more familiarly known as Chagri, the brother of Tugril Beg, the man who led the Seljuk Turks into Baghdad to take control of the Abbasid Caliphate and therefore become the dominant Islamic imperial dynasty of the Middle East. Alep Arsalan may have been born at a very similar time to Romanos Diodienis, and so they were both around the same age. Alep Arsalan's uncle, Tuchril Beg, became the sultan of the Seljuk Turks while Alep Arsalan was just a boy, and his own father, Tuchril's brother, Chagri Beg, was the governor of vast lands in the Khorasan, in the east of the great Seljuk Empire. One of the great rivals of the Seljuks during the period of Tugril Beg's reign as the Sultan of the Seljuk Empire was the Fatimids. The Fatimids originated as a nation in North Africa and had gained control of the lucrative lands of Egypt and the Levant. Their observance of Shia Islam put them into ideological odds with the Seljuk Turks, who had embraced Sunni Islam, the natural opponent to Shiism. Tugril would campaign against the Fatimids in Syria, and he would take his nephew Alep Arsalan with him. So this would give Alep Arsalan incredible military experience. Upon his return to Khorasan, Alep Arsalan would be prepared to succeed his father as a governor of Seljuk lands, and he would have become better acquainted with the trusted Seljuk statesman and vizier, Nizam al-Muluk, who would have undoubtedly given great political and diplomatic advice to the maturing Alep Arslan through their time together. Around the end of the 1050s or the beginning of the 1060s, Alep Arsalan's father, Chagri Beg, died and control of the lands of the Khorasan passed into Alep Arsalan's hands. 
Within a few years, the Sultan Dukhril Bey had also died without heir. So Alip Arsalan was a very natural candidate to be the successor as the Sultan. And he would have to overcome the claim of Tuhril's first cousin, Kutalamish. Alip Arslan, aided by his vizier, Nisam al-Muluk, proved to be more than a match for Kutalamish, and the two clashed at the Battle of Damakan in 1063, where Alip Arsalan emerged victorious. From here, Alip Arsalan began to demonstrate his strength as the new sultan. Not only would he effectively suppress internal rebellions, but he would campaign successfully in the lands of Georgia, Armenia and Transoxania, before turning his attentions towards Syria and the Fatimids. But Alip Arsalan would also be happy to raid the lands of the Byzantines while in this area. Prelude to the Battle It could be fair to say that Romanos IV was sick and tired of watching his Byzantine Empire allow the Seljuk Turks too many cheap victories in their territory during his lifetime. And he decided that he wanted to be much more proactive in the defence of his lands than his predecessors were able to. Alip Arsalan realised that the bigger threat to the Seljuk Turks were the Fatimids from the southeast but he knew that by plundering the resources of the Byzantine Empire that it would only help to strengthen his own position. Romanos decided to teach the Seljuk Turks a lesson and campaigned against them in retaliation for their conquest of the Byzantine city of Ani earlier in the 1060s. He oversaw the capture of the city of Membij in the modern country of Syria and when Alip Arsalan attempted to take the Byzantine city of Iconium, modern Konya, in 1069, Romanos resisted the siege and the Seljuks realised that the Byzantines were now a force to be respected. Understanding the threat of the Fatimids existed further south, Alib Arslan decided that it would be beneficial to negotiate a peace treaty with Romanos. Romanos would have to consider this very carefully, as it appeared that the momentum was shifting in his direction, and despite the fact that the Seljuk Turks were quite stretched on their western front, he realised that he was up against a formidable opponent should he continue to attack. So Romanos decided to entertain the negotiations, and this would free up Arslan to focus on the Fatimids. It would be a couple of years before Romanos decided that it was time to renegotiate the peace treaty and so he prepared an embassy to travel eastwards to meet with the Seljuk Turks. However, Romanos' intentions were not honest and rather than meet with the Seljuk Turks, he decided to attack Seljuk territory as the embassy was soon discovered to actually be a huge army. This huge army was the result of the fruits of Byzantine expertise in 11th century politics. The actual national armed forces of the Byzantines had not been maintained well since the time of Basil the Bulgar Slayer at the start of the century. So Romanos took advantage of the feudal system of his lands to call on his landowners for military numbers and he would also fiercely negotiate with many mercenary groups from all around Europe 
and also of other Turkic groups. Romanos himself would be accompanied by his Varangian guard, an elite group of bodyguards. Romanos decided that he would attempt to retake the lost city of Manzikert, knowing that Alep Arslan was a distance from the city. However, Alep Arslan had enough information by now that he could consider a calculated response to this action, and so he headed around Lake Van undetected in order to surprise Romanus's great army that had been deployed in the direction of Manzikert. It would be a force of around 20,000, maybe half of the Byzantine army, that would be pounced upon by the Seljuk Turks, who had the element of speed on their side with their lightly armoured Turkoman archers, who if allowed to remain on horseback, would devastate an armed unit with lightning speed. If any were unhorsed, they stood little chance. This half of the Byzantine army that came under the attack were under the command of Josef Tachaniotis. It is not clear from the sources whether this contingent were crushed by the Seljuk Turks or whether they defected. We do know that they played no further part in the story. The other half of the Byzantine army took control of the city of Manzikert and it was clear that both leaders were now aware of each other. Each leader would send scouts and envoys for reconnaissance and negotiation but they would be treated with hostility and it was clear that the only resolution was going to come after a military conflict and a pitched battle outside the city. The Battle of Menzikert. The Byzantine army set itself up along a long line across the battlefield. There were three units, a central one with one to its left and one to its right. All of them may have been several ranks deep. A reserve unit was stationed behind them. Byzantine cavalry would be on the flanks and Romanos IV himself would command the central unit. He decided that now was the time to march his army towards the Seljuk Turkic encampment. The date was the 26th of August, 1071. Alep Arsalan had set up his formation in a curved formation, and this was likely to be because of his dependence on the speed of the lightly armoured cavalry. He realised that it would do him no favours to become engaged in a close quarters battle with the Byzantine army, who would have been heavily armoured lance and axe wielding infantry. So the curvature of the formation was necessary to prevent them from being overwhelmed. While the Seljuk Turks continued to try to fend off the advancing Byzantine ranks, there was a sudden unleashing of hidden Turkic horsemen from behind the ridges and rocks of the landscape and the Byzantines were pushed back by this surprise backup attack. If Romanos felt positive about ultimate victory despite the attempts of the Seljuk Turks to attack the Byzantine camp on the day before the battle and despite the fact that Tarkaniotis had not returned with his many thousands of Byzantine soldiers, then the fact 
that the Byzantines had no way of knowing the exact numbers of the Seljuk Turks, both visible and hidden, must have been unnerving. Despite this, Romanos had not come to lose and remained determined to push on in a bid to get close to the Seljuk Turkic army, while weathering the raining arrows of the Turkic horsemen. Alep Arsalan ordered his lines to pull back and maintain their distance from the Byzantine front lines. Romanos' troops attacked the Turkic encampment while the Seljuk Turkic army backed up to higher ground. The Byzantines were getting the better of the battle, but a new factor that was often a major factor in historical battles was now going to come into play, as the sunset and darkness started to descend on the battlefield. Romanos made the decision to retreat for the day. The problem was that the retreat was badly organised, and Alep Arslan's army had not stood down despite being in a defensive position. The retreat was so chaotic that Alep Arslan saw an opportunity to capitalise late in the day. We cannot pinpoint exactly how and why the retreat was so chaotic, but there is a finger of suspicion that can be pointed in the direction of the commander of the Byzantine reserves who were behind the Byzantine front line. The commander was a man called Andronikos Dukas, a member of the Dukas dynasty, and possibly a man who harboured resentment of Romanos IV, since he was a non-Dukai that had married into the Byzantine royal family and threatened the power of the Dukas dynasty as a consequence. It is rumoured that Andronicus Dukas announced that Romanos had fallen, and this may have resulted in the reserves deserting the battlefield and mercenaries defecting from the Byzantines as well. Alaparsalan ordered a hasty attack shouting, the Takbir, Allahu Akbar, God is the greatest. And his army clashed with the Byzantine infantry while the Turkic cavalry rapidly advanced down the flanks to try to encircle the fleeing Byzantine army, now in complete disarray. It was left to Romanos himself and his elite bodyguards, the Varangian Guard, to valiantly defend themselves on the darkening battlefield in a brave last stand that was seemingly futile. The Varangian guard were slaughtered, and all that remained was the Byzantine emperor, Romanos IV, grounded from his horse, with his sword struck from his hand, and his body lethally wounded. The Seljuk Turks bound him in chains, and left him in agony on the battlefield, among his fallen army. This would be his bed for the night as darkness descended on the battlefield and the Byzantines. Aftermath The story of Romanos' comeuppance following his defeat on the battlefield is one of the more fascinating to muse over and the consequences of his defeat sent history very firmly in a direction which reverberates to this very day as we can link the result of this battle to the forthcoming Christian Crusades of the 12th century onwards. Romanos was brought before the Seljuk Turkic Sultan, Alep Arsalan, and was subjected to the most intriguing treatment. 
Romanus's life was spared on the battlefield because Alep Arslan realised that the emperor was more powerful alive than dead, as Alep Arslan wanted to send a clear message out to his enemies and also knew that Romanos' defeat was a shameful one, the likes of which would not be celebrated at all back in Constantinople. When I read about Emperor Romanus IV, dear Yinis, I see an emperor who proactively tried to save an empire falling from grace and suffering from weak leadership and a bickering aristocracy. The result at Manzikert could have been different but for the speculated betrayals among his ranks by the likes of Joseph Tarchaniotis and Andronicus Ducas. And at the same time, it may not have been different due to the unbreakable spirit and determination of the 11th century Seljuk Turks and their incredible sultans such as Tugril Bey and Alep Arslan himself. Romanos was brought before Alaparsalan, and Alaparsalan ceremonially put his foot to the back of Romanos's head, forcing him to kiss the ground. One chronicler suggests a conversation took place between the two where Romanos conceded that had Alaparsalan be his prisoner, that he would be paraded in the streets of Constantinople and probably be executed. Alaparslan responded by saying that he would grant Romanos a fate worse than death and that he would release him back to his own people. This wasn't done immediately as it is also chronicled that Romanos was even invited to dine at Alaparslan's table as if he were a guest of honour. Alaparslan seemingly felt no need to humiliate Romanos while in captivity as worse was certainly yet to come. When Romanos was released, possibly in the following year, 1072, he would head back to Constantinople. In the meantime, the Ducai had taken full control of the Byzantine throne by proclaiming the cousin of Andronicus Ducas, Mikhail, as the Emperor Mikhail VII Ducas. If there was an underlying desire to squeeze Romanos out of power, then this opportunity was seized by the Ducai to good effect, if they did indeed betray Romanos at Manzikert. Romanos was apprehended by Andronicus Ducas on his way back to Constantinople. He was ceremonially blinded and taken to the island of Proti, miles from Constantinople off the coast of the Peloponnese. It is suggested that his blinding wounds were so severe that he would die from the infection. He was around 42 years old. Alaparslan would turn his attentions east to those enemies on the borderlands on the other side of his empire, specifically in the region of Turkestan. The glorious sultan would be looking to expand his area of influence right off the back of this wonderful victory at Manzikert. As he was negotiating the conquests of these lands, he would be attacked by a knife-wielding prisoner. The prisoner was slain where he stood, but not before he had struck Alaparslan three times. Four days later, Alaparslan succumbed to his stab wounds, passing away perhaps at the same age as Emperor Romanos IV.
The politics of the Byzantine Empire did not settle after the destruction of Romanos IV. The rivalries of the Ducas, Komnenos and the Botaniates families would prevent the Byzantine Empire from gaining strength and would give the Seljuk Turks the opportunity to befriend members of these families for their own benefit. The balance of international power was firmly in the hands of the Seljuk Turks and the Byzantines were low on wealth, morale, solidarity and military force. Despite the fact that the Seljuk Turks could say that their own glory years were coming to an end following the death of Aliparslan, they were still able to flood into the Anatolian lands of the Byzantines unchallenged. The Dukai were eventually deposed from power in the Byzantine Empire by the year 1081, when Alexios Komnenos became the emperor. By this time, the lands of Anatolia had been lost to the Seljuk Turks, even though the comparative fragility of the Seljuk Turkic Empire meant that the Anatolian Seljuk Turks considered themselves to be a separate nation to the Seljuk Turks ruling from Baghdad. This would be the birth of the Sultanate of Rum, and the Byzantine Emperor Alexios I Komnenos would be powerless to stop his Christian towns and cities in Anatolia from being ruled by a Muslim nation. So desperate times called for desperate measures, and Alexios would swallow his pride and approach the patriarch of his biggest rival, Christian Church, in Rome, that we know better as the Pope. This action would have major ramifications for the entire history of the world, as it would signal the beginnings of the Crusades, something still glorified to this very day in the ongoing rivalry between Christians and Muslims in the modern world. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the podcast regarding the Battle of Manzikert. We're in the midst of a series of three military episodes here. And with last week, we discussed the exploits of Basil the Bulgar Slayer as he overcame the Bulgarians in the Cledian Pass. This week, we recognise how the Seljuk Turks managed to wrestle Anatolia away from Roman rule for after many centuries and then and next week we're going to see the aftermath of the rise of the Ottoman Turks and when they finally decided that they needed to try and eliminate Constantinople and the Byzantine rule of that city once and for all so next week's episode is a big episode I know I seem to say that quite a lot it seems to be a bit of a history of the world podcast cliche to say that next week is a big episode but certainly in course of uh, the context of world politics and history um the uh, the episode next week uh, it, it relates to the fall of constantinople in 1453 and so um there's a really there's an awful lot uh, to go into that story as well there's a there's a number of aspects and certainly uh, sort of canons are introduced as a major part of the story and of course, um, there's a lot to do with the, the you know, there's, there's also a lot to do with the way that the fall of Constantinople is perceived and, and particularly uh, the use of the word fall 
is actually quite intriguing. It's really um, possibly uh, misworded, I would say, if we're going to talk about the fall. It's uh, it's more not necessarily the city um, as opposed to the culture. So um, if you want to find out more, don't forget to listen to next week's episode. The Ancient World Cup This week's World Cup uh, group was Group J and um, for those of you who are not fully aware of what's going on we're playing the Ancient World Cup it's a voting competition whereby all the listeners of the History of the World podcast are invited to vote for their favourite teams and whoever they're Whoever they're voting for will advance to the next round. Now, we're looking at each group of four ancient uh, cultures, societies, nations, and uh, we can only vote for two of them to advance. So let's have a look at this group of four. We had in this group, J was the Seleucids, the Lydians, the Xiongnu, and the Parthians. And um, now we can announce the results of this week's group. Uh, in first place, the winners of the group with 41% of the vote are the Parthians, the Parthians who uh, who were in charge of the Persian lands uh, before uh, they were ultimately conquered by Persians themselves. So the Parthians of the lands of Bactria and Sogdiana, that area of the world, um, have won the group and they're going through to the knockout stages. In second place with uh, 28% of the vote, were the Seleucids, who interestingly were the uh, were the, uh, the peoples who the Parthians actually deposed as the rulers of the Persian land. So two uh, Persian ruling cultures, um, not fundamentally Persians themselves, but certainly ruling over Persian lands, and they're the two that have advanced. So this week we lose with 22% only the Xiongnu, who I was hoping might go through, but they've they've been knocked out, unfortunately. And the Lydians, who only received 9% of the vote. So we lose the Tsiongnu and the Lydians, and that concludes Group J. Um, the knockout stages, of course, will be later in the year, but we have still have some work to do to clear up uh, the remaining groups in the competition. We've only got six left now. We've done 10 of them, and we've got six left. Uh, this week will be Group K. So let's find out who is in Group K. Firstly, we've got the Harappans, um, otherwise known as the uh, Indus Valley Civilization. So a synonymous name, but um, a little bit easier for the purposes of this competition just to call them the Harappans. Um, were um, obviously of uh, Indus Valley origin one of the first societies that we know of that were any in any kind of proximity to the uh to the indian subcontinent so um really fascinating culture to study when we look at um some of the origins of their unique culture um then we've got the chabin of uh peru who would like the one of the first sort of um, cultures that we know any sort of significant detail about I would suggest the Chabin um, of Peru so we've really gone a little bit more exotic than our usual locations here um, the Chabin of course those um, those hallucinogenic societies uh, very spiritual uh, societies of uh, Peru 
Uh, also in there we've got the Akkadians, so we're going way back in history now to um, Sargon the Great, who was one of the, the first military leaders who we, who we have any sort of knowledge of whatsoever. Um, and and um, so we look at the, the Akkadians, whose uh, culture and language really took, uh, you know, took control of Sumeria and uh, the, uh, the lands of Lower Mesopotamia. And then uh, the final team of the group were uh, the Ptolemaic Egyptians, who were rather interestingly, um, much like the Seleucids, they were uh, an aftermath of Alexander the Great's um, major conquests of uh, the Middle East and, and lands beyond. The Ptolemaic Egyptians were the, were the aftermath of that and their regime uh, ended with the death of Queen Cleopatra. Who we uh, who we all know about, so it's a really interesting group this week. A really quite a diverse group. Group K: the Harappans, the Chabin, the Akkadians, and the Ptolemaic Egyptians. I'll be interested to see how the votes go for that one. So look uh, on social media platforms: Facebook, Twitter, and the Tapper Talk uh, dis- the, uh, discussion forum. You can find all of those uh, pages in the interact section of the History of the World podcast. Dot com website. Illuminati Question Time. What is Illuminati Question Time? Well, it's not something that we have introduced this week. We have done it before. Basically, it's a, it's a part of the show where which is open to members of the History of the World podcast, the Illuminati. And uh, so what is that exactly? Well, it's a special club that's been created for anyone who makes financial contributions to the History of the World podcast. And that can be done by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, clicking on the patron link and signing up to make monthly contributions. And uh, when you make monthly contributions, you become a member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, um, and you can qualify for associated rewards such as... Uh, having a question answered during a podcast episode, which is something that we're going to do this week. Now, new members of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, people who we would like to uh, uh, to recognise and say thank you to are Philip Hand, Amber Olson, James L. Carrier, Emmanuel Giri, and Matthew Hagen. So thank you to all of you. You're now lifelong members of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, and I will make sure that your contributions are used wisely. So thank you very much. Um, the, uh, the, the, the man who is qualified to have a question answered is um, someone who uh, we introduced to the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, um, some time ago. And that's uh, David Hannon, who has written in and said, Hi, Chris, I've been racking my brains to try and think of a question to ask you. And as it turns out, I think I actually have two. It's a bit greedy, isn't it? Two, but never mind, never mind. I'll ask you just one question for now. But if you would allow me the luxury of a second further down the road, then I'd be most grateful. I'll, I'll have a think about that. So here goes. It is often thought that the development of the Greek alphabet, which is the precursor to our, mod, uh, to our Western modern alphabets today and one of the real turning points in the recording of written history, is dated at around 800 BCE. The fact that this alphabet was invented led to the ability of a far larger portion of the population had, than had previously been possible 
to communicate um, complex ideas and stories through the written medium and not just the oral medium. And that meant reading as a whole was not just restricted to the rich upper classes and that knowledge was able to be retrained for posterity to a far more effective extent. It is around this time of 800 BCE that Homer is is thought to have written the Iliad and the Odyssey. However, as Homer was a lyricist, and as such his work or trade, if you prefer, was similar to that of a bard who communicated through song and poetry rather than prose, it is highly unlikely that he himself would have written down on paper, or papyrus for that matter, either the Iliad or the Odyssey, but rather would simply have been the one to have performed them by heart through memory. There is little doubt that as a bard, he was obviously extremely talented, as although the stories he was telling were centuries old by 800 BCE, and he was almost certainly wasn't the, the only person travelling the land and telling them, his way of performing them was obviously so captivating that it led to his versions being the ones that have reached us in this present day. It is often said that the Iliad Odyssey and the Bible are the two most influential texts in Western society due mainly to the fact that the stories contained within are a mixture of historical fact and fantastic fiction which in both cases lead them to be uh, lead them lead to them being used as the guidebooks of pagan polytheism in Greece and Rome as is the case for Homer and monotheistic Jewish and Christian beliefs as is the case for the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. It can also be said that whatever your religious beliefs they both share the common factor of being excellent, engrossing and fascinating stories. This leads me finally to my question. Do you give credence to the possibility that the creation development of the Greek alphabet was a direct response to someone's desire to record and be able to accurately retell the timeless and fantastical poems of Homer or even more controversially that Homer himself was the creator of the Greek alphabet and instead of being the one who performed these great works he was merely the one who wrote down and preserved these stories which would later become the foundation and creation story for later generations of Greeks such as Alexander the Great Pericles et al. Food for thought regards David Hannon. Um. This is a very interesting um, uh, written email, David, and um, I have different perspectives and there's a number of um, things that we can speculate about and and I can't be too dismissive of some of the things that you've put in this email, but um, I I tried to take a much wider view, really, and um, we can't really say that... we, We have to remember that ancient Greece was not the beginnings of modern society. It stretches back way before that uh, to the uh, societies of uh, Mesopotamia, for the societies of the Levant and uh, the societies of Egypt as well that were um, thriving long before um, any kind of European um, proliferation of of academia or 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 the such alikes even just if we look at the babylonians um and their uh, ability to um to sort of to master great sort of academic subjects as was the egyptians um certainly uh, the phoenicians were uh, the the trade masters of the mediterranean long before the greeks came along and so we have to always remember that greek innovations are just uh you know part of the way down the the line they're not they're not the beginnings of things um certainly 
writing and um, writing is you know dates back to Mesopotamia with the the cuneiform script, the cuneiform script, as it as it sometimes referred to, and also the hieroglyphs of uh, of ancient Egypt. But also we see the emergence of what we might refer to as an alphabet um, before the Greeks. And certainly the seafaring Phoenicians, the ones that took advantage of the late Bronze Age collapse and, um, you know, they were the ones that stepped in and took advantage of that um, of that loss of, of imperial um, influence of the Hittites, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, etc. Um, the Phoenicians were the ones that capitalised on that and their trade their requirements for records of trade would have needed them to have an easy way to script uh, transactions. And therefore, that's why I believe that alphabets were successful in Phoenicia. And in turn, um, the Phoenicians um, would have certainly visited the lands of the Greeks and the Greeks would have benefited from their transactions with the Phoenicians. And as such, I think the Greek alphabet was created in a response to trade, to Mediterranean trade, and was absolutely nothing to do with recording poetry or stories. Um, so that's really my my opinion of that, and it is just an opinion. I also don't really believe that there would have been a lot of literacy in the Greek-speaking world at all. Um, and certainly, really, it would have been like a very, very high percentage in the high 90s of um, illiteracy um, before post-Socratic um, Greece. Um, so I'm sort of talking about the, the sort of the fourth century BCE and, and, and back, you know. Um, I, I really don't believe that I would have there's not a lot of evidence to say that literacy among the population would have existed at all so even if it even if homer's epics were written down it would have been a very very small few people that would have ever been able to read it and um also the existence of homer is hotly disputed as well um with um the fact that a lot of um let's say um societies from from back that back then were quite happy to glorify the origins of their society and the Greeks maybe in the face of um, threats from the Persians and, and maybe eventually the Romans um, may have wanted to glorify their own beginnings in order to rally a united uh, front against foreign enemies and, and let's not let's not forget that Greece was not a nation it was um, it was a, a sort of a cooperation of nations when it suited them and um, so in order to sort of gel those societies together they would have had to have uh, created a common identity that maybe a lot of the residents of these lands wouldn't have considered before and uh, so someone would have stood up and said look we're Greek speakers we all have the same origin we all come from this wonderful age of um, you know the aftermath of the Trojan Wars and these Greek gods that have led our way and we all uh, answered to the oracle at the Delphi and um, you know we here are the stories and um, of our origin and uh, Homer was the one who wrote them down now whether Homer existed or not or whether he was a later creation of someone trying to create a, a, a lasting legacy of Greek um, of Greek identity we don't know but 
David, I love the fact that you've made me think about Homer in a way that I've never thought about him before. And um, certainly I think these are the wonderful possibilities of when when we all read the same stories of history and we all come to our own individual conclusions. When two people get together and talk about their own individual conclusions, there there are rarely uh, discussions that are more fascinating than that. And it's an absolute pleasure to discuss and even listen to discussions among people who have differing viewpoints and just to see whether there's there can be a common uh, agreement anywhere between them. And to think that Homer was this uh, highly popular bard going around reciting these memorised um, you know, pieces of poetry about the past, about the Trojan Wars and, and that kind of thing. I just find that quite um, quite interesting to ponder on. So uh, thank you so much, David, for, for actually just, uh, you know, even painting that picture in my mind. I've, I've really enjoyed sort of um, thinking on that and uh, certainly a way that I've never thought about Homer before. I've questioned whether he's real or not. And now I'm thinking about him as a real person uh, going around Greek lands and telling these wonderful stories in such a, a an entertaining way. So great question, David. I hope I've sort of um, given you my perspective on it. And I know it's a bit of a dramatic shift from what you wrote, but certainly when you have an opinion, it's hard to get away from it. So uh, I think it's fair to discuss mine. And uh, if anyone else has any kind of opinion on that subject... We'd love to hear from you, just Stephen, even if you strike it up on the Tapper Talk discussion forum. I think that's a wonderful place where people can come together and share their ideas. And uh, sometimes we're a little bit shy to um, to share our ideas for fear of being ridiculed or belittled. And uh, certainly um, that's not the kind of community I want to promote. I'd love to sort of hear everyone's wonderful perspectives and the imagination of the human mind can be celebrated in a place like that. So, but thank you, David. Thank you for writing in, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the answer to your question. Listener messages and reviews. It's been uh, quite a long episode this week, so I'll quickly crack out some listener messages and reviews. Uh, Let's uh, see what Phil Hand has uh, said. He's put, yo, 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 Chris, history, Dazzler, Hasler. Big fan, I'm up to volume two, episode 18. Always listen and love your outros. Your effort to engage and acknowledge the community you have created is fantastic and also what led me to this email. Straight to the point, I've always wanted to give your podcast a five-star review but i don't use apple podcasts i use spotify i assume in your top three of all platforms certainly is certainly is um spotify and and apple uh, podcasts are definitely the the top two platforms uh well i just found you uh, that that now uh, i just found out that now we finally can uh, i think that's what um I've, that's what was supposed to be written now. So it basically is Philip is saying he's found out a way that um, Spotify uh, listeners can review the podcast. It's a great opportunity to let your users know if it's new, get a head start on the algorithm. Personally, I'm chuffed I can finally show my appreciation, even if only in this small way. I'm sure others will feel the same. Lastly, for me, I'd love to know if you get any kind of user stats from your analytics like Top Binger. Um, I'm, I'd squeeze in in a blissful 
I'm squeezing in a blissful three odd hours a day since discovering uh, Hot World. You are the man, Philip Hand. Well, very enthusiastic and colourful email that, uh, Philip. Thank you very much indeed. And of course, uh, we recognise you now as a new member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati also. Um, I, lo- I logged into the Spotify app on my uh, on my PC and I couldn't find a way of rating it. But then also, I, I logged in on my phone and I found that there is a little star there and you can press it. And, uh, you know, we've got 4.9 stars out of 5, which is wonderful. And I, I, I never even realised it existed. So... Philip, thank you so much for educating me. Very, um, very useful that. And uh, maybe those of you who do listen on Spotify, now you can actually find it on your phone. There is a a way to uh, rate the podcast. Um, Philip also went on to say, he sent me another email, he just say, random idea, how about you do a competition each year for the fans to create the next season podcast album art? Most votes win by a last episode bet you get some good engagement and call art for free. Uh, you're probably right, Phil, but I think that the one thing that I do face the most criticism of when I go from one season to another is, of course, the music. And uh, this uh, Volume 4's music has not been that popular, I've got to be honest. So I maybe need to sort of commission someone to um, to make some good music for Volume 5. So that might be the, the right competition to start. But anyway, Philip, thank you so much for writing in. Um, Jim Carrier has written in and put, Dear Chris, my search for a good history podcast to keep me company during my daily workouts ended this past summer when I discovered the History of the World podcast series on Spotify. Wow, what a journey so far. Your ambitious project is obviously a labour of love. You tell the stories of mankind in the most understandable and engaging manner while faithfully paying homage to different schools of historical thought. In fact, whenever clouds of doubt cast shadows over historical facts, you encourage listeners to make up their own minds. This bo- oh, excuse me. This both honours the listener with due respect and teaches the value of historical perspective. History of the World content is obviously painstakingly put together and well-researched. I find it to be of consistent, rich quality across all volumes and episodes. You do a fine job synthesising current historical thinking, even when written source materials must be quite scarce and we must be uh, leaning on heavily on scant archaeological and anthropological evidence. I know this involves a lot of hard work. Then you manage to convey your considerable research to listeners in a highly digestible, story-like fashion, something even harder to do. Only the very best professors and writers of popular history can do this, and you do it admirably. I have always loved history, though now I am now retired. Long ago, I was college uh, I was college trained to teach history. In fact, I did teach it for a few years, both at high school and college level, before changing careers. Um, in as much as I appreciate your podcast content. I would rather cite your approach to listeners, mostly loyal fans of history, as being your exemplary practice. Aspiring history teachers at any level would do well to pay heed to your contagious enthusiasm, your routine solicitation of contrarian points of view, your constructive acceptance of criticism and your humour. You take listeners along your wonderful journey with your friendly voice, making it feel very personal, conversational and fun. I hope my newborn grandson someday has a teacher with such joy for history. I told myself that when I finally caught up to your present day podcast, I would break down and buy you a book. Well, so you've earned that book. I look forward to contributing more to your project in the days ahead. Thank you. Um, 
Jim, that is an incredible complimentary email. I'm, I'm really quite blown away by how articulately put your uh, respect for the project is. And, uh, and, and um, you know, I think when I receive messages like that, um, it's a great motivator for me. It really makes me feel like I'm doing something worthwhile. So, Jim, thank you so, so much. And, um, you know, I, you say, look, I, I hear this stated a lot, labour of love certainly is a labour of love. I love listening and reading about these stories and researching it and trying to put it into my own words and, and thinking, would this be interesting to listen to and I think there's only one podcast episode which I wrote and I thought you know what that was a load of old tripe and I, I didn't tell that story well at all and and that was the one about um sort of post hand China um apart from that I'm I'm reasonably happy with a lot of the work I'm pushing out so um I'm glad that it's being received so well and it's it's absolute pleasure to do and thank you so much for your kind message it really does mean a lot to receive those kinds of messages um now, um, Eric Young, um, a great friend of the podcast, has requested that um, we write an episode on medieval weaponry and he's uh, earned that pleasure by uh, contributing towards the podcast and, um, and earning the right to commission his own episode, which you can do by signing up to be a patron and, uh, and joining the History of the World Podcast Illuminati. So we're going to be making an episode about medieval weaponry sometime uh, later in the year. And uh, it's a, it's an excellent subject and, and something that, you know, certainly we're getting insights of with these Byzantine battle episodes. And certainly next week as well is going to be, you know, we're going to have to discuss um, somewhat the weaponry used um, during the siege of Constantinople. So, Eric, a, f- a fantastic suggestion. Thank you. Really look forward to um, to writing that episode when the time comes around to do so. Um, and I think that might be it. Uh, if I haven't read uh, your email, I apologise, but I think uh, that covers it all. Um, now let's uh, just quickly wipe up um, some reviews before we sign off. So very, very quickly then, the Apple Podcast ones I've got uh, from Mapache77777 from the United States of America has put 300 you know how they say the book was way better than the movie? The same can be said about Chris. He's a real page-turner, bravo. Uh, one, Max R. from the United States of America has put, Great podcast. I love this podcast. Extremely extremely informative and one of the best history podcasts out there. Do yourself a favour and subscribe. And then finally, we've got Georgia R. 15 uh, from Great Britain. Brilliant. So interesting. Everything is so well explained. It's detailed and goes into great depth while still being easy to understand. Excellent presenter. Uh, thank you so much to um, to the three of you for your wonderful reviews. It really is uh, very, very encouraging to see that kind of thing coming through. And uh, listen, I'm sorry to everyone who, um, to, who may struggle with this part of the show. I think it's very, very important that um, I do uh, recognise those people who've been kind enough to take the time to tell... Uh, the world and tell me how much they are enjoying this podcast and I think it's very very important that I acknowledge that and I leave it to the end of the shows simply so that if you don't want to listen to it you can just sort of turn off and move on to the next episode so you, you don't have to listen to the whole thing you're not going to miss out but certainly um, if you do like to hear a little bit more at the end of the episode uh, sometimes this can be uh, good fun 
and a and a good sort of um it can be a good debrief to the episode itself so but um i know it's been a long one this week and thank you so much for everyone um who has listened and uh, can't wait for next week next week's going to be great the the siege of constantinople the final conflict between the byzantines and the ottomans um really exciting stuff a real gr- a great story can't wait to tell that one so until next week uh have a great week everyone and be good the history of the world podcast written and presented by chris hasler please consider making a financial contribution by going to the history of the world podcast.com website and clicking on the patreon link Email the show at History of the World Podcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time. <laughs>